Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Klobitz, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Steve Dunn about his book on the British naval operations off the, uh, off the coast of Ireland during World War I, entitled Bailey's War, The Battle for the Western Approaches in the First World War. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Um, well, I'm a, an author of naval histories. Um, Bailey's War uh, is the um, fifth uh, book uh, that I've written, and the last three, Bailey's War, um, Securing the Narrow Sea and Blockade, a bit about how securing command of the sea uh, helped Britain win the First World War, Britain and her allies win the First World War. Um, allies particularly important in the case of Bailey's War because, of course, one of its subjects is the uh, integration of the American Navy and the British Navy into uh, a single command operating off Ireland. What was it that uh, drew you to that subject generally? Because you've, as you've just pointed out, you've written three books about it, and uh, you've explored some facets of it that haven't necessarily always been the focus of many naval historians of the era. Uh, I agree. Um, I'm, I'm particularly attracted to it because, first of all, there's so much emphasis on the terrible battles on the Western Front and the, and, the, and the slaughter that took place there that people tend to miss the point that Britain had a navy and without that navy, Britain would have lost the war. Uh, and although the navy didn't get to fight its Trafalgar equivalent, um, you know, the Battle of Jutland, Jutland was at best a score draw. Um, nonetheless, the Navy played a hugely important role in retaining command of the sea, which meant that Britain didn't starve. It meant that supplies, men, equipment and materiel could get from A to B, um, to get from wherever it was made to the Western Front. And of course, Germany did starve and, uh, and the blockade, which Britain's Navy imposed on Germany. Uh, led to a decline in morale, uh, and when morale on the Western Front eventually collapsed within the German army, it was uh, in part due to the fact that they knew at home that relatives, friends, um, family were starving to death. Now, your book does not discuss the blockade in Toto or the uh, war at sea against the U-boats in general. It focuses upon one aspect of that uh, war on trade, which was the war of that was fought in the Western approaches. What exactly are the Western approaches, and 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 what and how uh, central were they to the overall war on the seas? Well, the Western approach is, uh, is that tract of the Atlantic Ocean to the western south of Ireland. Uh, and it's really very important to Britain because Britain as an island uh, was and is um, dependent on imports for both food and for manufacturing. Uh, and what we would now call its supply chain all had to come through the Western approaches, goods from North America, goods from Canada, goods from the Caribbean, Africa, Australasia, 
India, ores and raw materials from the Southern Americas, they all had to pass through the Western approaches. Uh, uh, and in many senses, this was the greatest sea battle of the war, because if Germany's U-boats, which targeted trade in the Atlantic uh, uh, in an attempt to drive Britain to submissions and lack of food and material, if they had been successful, Britain would have been knocked out of the war probably by the end of 1916, early 1917. I was thinking about there's this technological issue which makes the Western approaches uh, so vitally important, which is that it's not at the area where the British can geographically dominate. I thought that that was a, a, a point that you made nicely in your last book, Securing the Narrow Sea, which was that that was an area where the British had a very uh, substantial presence and 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 deployed themselves very aggressively. The Western approaches are a little bit further away from that. And, I, and, and that was one of the uh, contrasts that really came across in your book. But it's also that the, the U-boats, the, the German submersibles at the time, they – were this new weapon of war. And as you explained, they, they, they only had a limited range. And that was, in a sense, the area where they could go to where they uh, did not have to worry as much about interception, but could still really dis, uh, deliver a, a fatal blow to British shipping. That's absolutely true. The, the U-boats uh, were originally envisaged by Germany as coastal defense vessels. But then as technology improved, they saw that they could probe further. And eventually, uh, it wasn't until early 1915, they got into the Irish Sea and then into the, into the Atlantic. Um, and the British Navy, which had never really taken submarines very seriously anyway, uh, had absolutely no means of, of countering them. Um, there was no such thing as sonar or ASDIC. Uh, once the submarine was underwater, it was impossible uh, to locate or to find. Your only chance was to find it on the surface. And if it saw you before you saw it, uh, the, the, the U-boat would simply submerge and you couldn't find it. And then you add to that the additional factor, which you uh, detail quite well in your book, which is the sort of the... the uh, backwater nature, if you'll excuse the pun, of the uh, of the command of the station in Ireland. It, it was not Scapa Flow. It was not where the fleet was. It, it, and could, could you explain exactly how it was that it fit into the war effort at the start, and and what sort of resources they had to uh, deal with this uh, with the U boat threat? Ireland Command was first of all very divided. There were several admirals responsible for various bits of the Irish coast. Um, but secondly, it was not considered to be very important because um, traditionally Britain had, had um, uh, seen France as her enemy, her, her major naval point, ports pointed at France. As Germany began to, to become seen as a, a potential enemy, then of course the, the defences on, on the east coast of Scotland and the east coast of Britain were strengthened. But nobody thought about the fact that trade could be interdicted uh, off the coast of Ireland because it was assumed that the war would be fought under what were called prize rules, uh, whereby in a very gentlemanly fashion, submarines or warships would stop um, cargo ships individually. Um, they'd have to deal with them individually. They'd have to take all their passengers off, their crews off. Uh, they could only sink them under certain well-defined rules. Well, of course, that wasn't the game that anybody played in the First World War in the end. Um, so, so nobody had seen Ireland as a particularly important command. And when Bailey took over in the summer of 1915, for example, the only warships he had at his command were um, a collection of rather antiquated torpedo boats, uh, three or four of them. Uh, and trawlers. 
and, and that was what that was the hand he had to play uh, when he took over. Now, increasingly, as losses mounted uh, off the Irish coast, and as Bailey got to grips with his command and um, started to uh, pester uh, the Admiralty in London, he got more and more resources. But at the very start, he was uh, fighting U-boats with trawlers and, and a few antiquated warships. The trawlers were especially interesting because of how you describe their the way that they were used against the U-boats. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that because it's really interesting, not just in terms of this issue of limited resources, but you're also seeing that this idea of they're at the dawn of this uh, of the age of the submarine, and they're still trying to figure out how to actually get these things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, the the, the the trawlers were taken up from the fishing trade. Um, they were they were just your standard fishing trawler, uh, and they were taken up complete with their crews and skipper. Uh, usually, the only change was that a, a, a naval reservist or a signal uh, person might be put on board to operate a radio. Um, they were fitted with one or maybe two guns: a six-pounder, a three-pounder, a twelve-pounder, uh, and a machine gun. Uh, so the, the biggest gun they'd have would be a twelve-pounder. Typically, they carried a three-pounder. Um, and they were sailed by people who were not naval people in any way. They'd not been trained for war. They'd not been trained to fight. Um, these were commercial trawlers. They weren't built for speed. Their average speed on the, the surface, they could probably manage to get up to about nine knots. Well, uh, by 1915, U-boats were doing nine knots under the water, uh, and on the surface of the water could do perhaps 15, 13 knots. Um, so uh, it was a completely um, uh, unwinnable war for a trawler. If they saw a U-boat on the surface, they couldn't catch it on the surface. Uh, and if it submerged, well, they couldn't see it. And in fact, they couldn't have caught it either. Um, but the trawler was all there was in, in that command because the vessels that might have been more suitable for chasing uh, U-boats, which would be destroyers or boats of that nature, uh, were all tied up with the Grand Fleet, uh, waiting for the, the great climactic battle when the Germans would come out and we'd have our Trafalgar at last. I like how they were trying to make uh, the, the best use of the trawlers they could by taking advantage of their original roles as fishery vessels and having them deploy these nets to try to, uh, to, 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 try to stop the U-boats that way. Navy had an unwavering and um, rather unintelligent obsession with nets, uh, and I put it down to the fact that the, the officer class came from the hunting, and shooting, and fishing set, and if you <laughs> catch salmon with a net, you catch a U-boat. Um, so everything was netted. There, there, there were, every cove had nets stretched across it. Uh, there was a huge netted area uh, off the coast of Northern Ireland. Um, the, the, harking back to securing the Narrow Sea, of course, that was all about building a, a big net barrage across the English Channel. Um, uh, all through the war, uh, we were still deploying nets to try and catch submarines with very, very limited effect. And in Ireland, despite the, the hundreds of miles of nets deployed, they didn't catch one submarine. And as you explained, from the early months of the war, the Germans, uh, that U-boats that were reaching the Western approaches, were finding it to be a very fertile hunting ground, especially and most famously, of course, with the uh, Lusitania. Uh, what was it that 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 uh, you know you know how, how did that early on uh, you know change the, the 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 face of the war and and how did the command respond to it in those early months? Well, the sinking of the Lusitania. 
Mesopotamia, about which many books have been written, um, was a pivotal event in the war because it did three things. Firstly, it appalled um, public opinion. Um, suddenly, war was no longer a gentlemanly sport. This was about killing hundreds and hundreds of civilians, um, women, children, uh, people who were from a neutral, sailed from a neutral nation, from America. Um, it was about killing Americans, and that outraged public opinion in America. Um, and it demonstrated that um, the command in Ireland was was unfitted for purpose because, the, as the book demonstrates, the, there was no real clear and logical response to the fact that there were submarines operating off the coast of Ireland and the Lusitania was coming through them. Um, the, the first of those, the first two of those um, issues created led to uh, the, the first stirrings in America of the thought that America ought to join the war and that this was a war for civilization. Uh, and, and the third one um, led directly to the dismissal of the admiral who was in charge of, of the area um, where uh, the um, ship went down and um, the appointment of Bailey, who took up his command in, in um, June, June, July of 1915. The title of your book highlights just how central Bailey is to the command of the Western approaches from the point he takes over up through the end of the war. Uh, could you take us back a bit and explain who Lewis Bailey was and what it was that he brought to the command upon his appointment? Well, Lewis Bailey is a, a very divisive figure, uh, and most historians either mock him or dismiss him. Um, he was considered by many of his peers to be slightly mad. Um, he was a stern disciplinarian. He was an unbending man. He was a very taciturn man. Um, deeply religious, um, kept himself to himself, um, was, was rude to the point that, um, uh, of insubordination. Um, and um, in, the early, in, uh, in the early part of the war, in, in, on January the 1st, 1915, um, when the battleship Formidable was sunk with horrendous loss, um, he was considered to have been responsible for that loss. Uh, and he was fired from his position he then held and put on ice, uh, effectively given a, 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 a position looking after um, the Navy's um, college. Um, and uh, it was only um, when um, Jellicoe and Beatty effectively petitioned um, the Admiralty saying, we must have a unified command uh, off the coast of Ireland, and um, Bailey would be the man to do it, uh, that he was um, uh, allowed out of cold storage uh, and told that he had the job. Um, but, but he was a, a, a very, um, it must have been a very strange man, a very driven, very introverted, uh, very difficult to get on with. And yet, as, as the book explains, well, when the Americans joined the war, the American captains loved him. Uh, and, and he became a hero in the American Navy in a way that he never was in, in, in the British Navy. So uh, he did have many characteristics that people responded well to, just not his own people. You describe how when he takes over in the uh, summer of 1915, there's this instant change in the atmosphere. They're, 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 it, uh, they're in uh, – they're in a, the southern Irish port, it, and of course, as you uh, detail as well, it, this you know their location becomes 
a, a very uh, touchy issue with all of the events taking place in Ireland. The Easter uh, uh, uprising is uh, less than a year off in the future. And, and how uh, – but when he takes over, there is still this – you know, this almost this pre-war atmosphere you describe of social calls and everything. And as you, and, and as you explained, Bailey quickly puts an end to that. Yes, but Bailey didn't come from the aristocracy. I mean, Bailey was middle class. Um, and, and the bulk of the um, Navy's um, command structure, if you want to call it that, at the beginning of the war, was, was comprised of people who came from privileged backgrounds. Um, so Bailey had no compunction about um, uh, breaking the social taboos and break, uh, doing away with all the courtesies which were seen, which, which were held to attend the position he'd now taken. Um, he just said, "We're here to fight a war. We're going to get on with it." Um, and um, he quickly forced the pace. I mean, part of what he had at Queenstown was, was a dockyard. Uh, 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 Queenstown was, was the base for the Coast of Ireland Command. And he quickly um, got the dockyard working in a way that it had never worked before. Uh, he solved the problem of people intercepting coded messages by changing the way that messages were transmitted. Uh, and he, he basically had a very brass tacks approach, um, which not everybody responded well to. Um, but he did get some, he injected some pace into the operation and he got the people doing things in a logical fashion. He strikes me uh, from your uh, book as being a man uh, who was, you know, very focused on the task at hand. And yet you also describe how solicitous he was to uh, the needs of his men in in, in the ways that he tried to accommodate them both at Admiralty House uh, and, and, and on the grounds. I think in many ways, Bailey was a modern leader. Um, because, yes, he was very task-focused and very goal-focused, but he recognized that he could only achieve his goals through people. Uh, and if you did your job well for Bailey, um, then he would look after you. Um, his reputation for, for harshness had been gained because he punished heavily those who didn't do their job properly. But if you came to him and worked your socks off and... Um, delivered what he wanted you to deliver. He was ex extremely supportive as a leader. And um, the, the British officers, when they arrived on the base, uh, came with some trepidation, given his reputation, and they, they found that his bark wasn't quite as bad um, as um, had been painted. That's, that's a very mixed metaphor. <laughs> um, but but um, when the Americans arrived, uh, they were a long way from home. Many of them had never left America uh, and he made a home for them. He, he became a sort of paterfamilias, um, using his, his official residence, Admiralty House, as a place where they could go and sleep and rest. And his niece, Violet, who'd come with him as his chatelaine, um, became a sort of elder sister to these people and, uh, and provided the feminine touches that, that, that were necessary to make their lives better. So he did reveal a side which I don't think any of his colleagues thought he had. But I, I, I think myself it was because um, he knew that he couldn't do what needed to be done unless he had people working for him willingly. And, and he was clever enough to recognize that, that um, providing a, uh, an out-of-work environment that allowed people just to decompress and relax a little bit uh, was a very good thing to do. 
Now, as you've already alluded to, his, uh, you know, his the Americans coming in does dramatically change the situation in the command, but that doesn't happen until the summer of 1917. So there's this two-year period where he is in charge, where it's, you know, almost entirely a British effort, and it's one in which he is not only dealing with sort of the 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 uh, you know the the uh, rise and fall and rise again of the U-boat campaign. He's also dealing with the politics that are taking place within Ireland. So I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, break that period down a little bit for us and explain how he was responding to the challenges of the U-boats as those challenges changed, and also how he was responding to the the challenges of the the political scene. Well, as far as the U-boats were concerned, Bailey's strategic ideas at this point were quite conservative. He managed to get the Admiralty to send him a dozen sloops, which were a new sort of uh, vessel, um, not as fast as a destroyer, not as well armed, but easy to construct and cheap to construct. Uh, and he, he had 12 of these, um, plus a few other bits and pieces he managed to get his hands on. Um, and he deployed those seeking U-boats or providing one-to-one escorts um, for incoming ships, a very inefficient use uh, of that resource because one sloop sailing to try and find a U-boat has got a fairly minimal chance of finding it. Um, he also, and I think we, we need to give Bailey the credit here, he invented the Q-ship. Uh, it's called a Q-ship because they were built at Queenstown. Um, and the Q-ship was, uh, was Bailey's idea and, and he deployed them um, in considerable number around the Irish coast. Q-ships were um, colliers or tramp ships, ordinary cargo boats, generally quite small, slow, uh, very innocuous-looking, easy targets for a U-boat commander to think he could sink. Um, but they were heavily armed with disguised weapons and crewed by uh, a naval crew. Um, and initially they would sail hoping that a U-boat would surface near them, um, which was the, the practice in the early part of the war. The, the U-boat would surface, it would order the um, crew to abandon the ship, and then it would, uh, some, some German sailors would board the target and sink it with bombs. Um, if they could get the um, U-boat to surface near them, um, they would drop the um, disguise and immediately open fire with the hidden weapons and try and sink the U-boat. Later, when the U-boats became wary of this, uh, Q-ships took it even further and deliberately allowed themselves to be torpedoed um, so that um, the U-boat would then surface to see what it could find out about its victim and then would be attacked by the concealed weaponry. Um, The only success, really, that the coast of Ireland command had in, in, in sinking U-boats in, in the early part of the war came from these Q-ships, and, and, and Bailey invented them. Uh, and they were um, manned by some very, very brave people. Um, uh, there were a, a number of Victoria, uh, Victoria Crosses, one um, sailing in Q-ships, and um, one gentleman, um, uh, uh, commander, later Captain Gordon Campbell, one of VC and three DSOs sailing in Q-ships for Bailey. Wow. Um, so, so those were, were Bailey's um, strategic um, innovations, if you like, in 1915, 1916. Um, he also had the problem of the growing Irish independence movement to deal with. You know, Ireland was part of Britain, certainly part of the British Empire, and most people regarded it as being part of... of, of, um, of Britain itself, but it was actually like being on a foreign posting 
because most of the people uh, he was living amongst actually felt that um, he was some sort of interloper, as were his men, and um, that Ireland should be an independent nation. And of course, this culminated with the Easter Rising of 1916. Uh, and, uh, and here's another um, facet of, of the Navy, which has been very little explored, I think, except in this book, because the Navy played a considerable role in, in the suppression of, of the Easter Rising, uh, providing mobility, providing artillery, uh, providing mobile firepower, uh, and uh, also, of course, intercepting the arms which uh, had been sent for the use of the revolutionaries. So um, Bailey not only had to fight Germans, he also, not, <clears throat> not quite in the literal sense, but he had to fight Irish people as well. And it, it was very much like a foreign posting. And as you explain, it, uh, it was very complicated for uh, Bailey because it wasn't simply a matter of suppressing the rebels or intercepting the arms. He had to maintain good relations with the locals, not just in terms of civilian military relationships, but as you've already uh, in, uh, referred, uh, he needed uh, the working dock, and those dock workers were Irish. Yes, uh, and it was a fine line for him to, to tread. And again, I think he did it. I think he did pretty well. I mean, one of the things he did was make friends with the bishop, um, who was the you know, a very important local dignitary. The Catholic Church being immensely strong in Ireland at that time. Um, and later on, uh, in, when the Americans had arrived, the, the bishop was actually quite useful in, in smoothing over some of the worst of the um, uh, antipathy between the, the British and American sailors and their Irish, uh, the Irish population they were living amongst. The Americans entered the war in April of 1917, and uh, as you describe, the first American vessels uh, are deployed to the command about two or three months later. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon some of the challenges of uh, integrating those commands and uh, not just Bailey's role in terms of addressing those challenges, but also uh, some of the other major figures involved who uh, were working with Bailey during this time. Uh, yes. Um, I mean, the Americans' arrival was a very significant event um, because for the first time it gave Bailey access to a large number of destroyers and, and many more warships. Um, the first Americans arrived on the 4th of May, um, led by Commander Joseph Tausig, um, who was sailing in, in the USS Wadsworth, leading Division 8 of the destroyer flotilla of the Atlantic Fleet. Um, but the fact that he sailed at all uh, is probably mainly due to a man called um, Rear Admiral William S. Sims, USN, um, who had been sent um, incognito to the UK to establish how, the, in the event of war breaking out, which he did while he was crossing the Atlantic Ocean, um, uh, the US Navy could best uh, assist the Royal Navy. And Sims was uh, uh, an Anglophile, but he also very quickly saw the issues that needed to be addressed. And he was very positive in working with the American ambassador, Walter Page, uh, to get the American um, uh, corporate bodies to, to uh, send and send quickly um, ships, particularly destroyers, to Britain, because on 
the American side, Benson, Admiral Benson, who was the chief of naval staff uh, for the U.S. Navy, um, he really didn't want to send anything. And uh, indeed, he, he was on record as saying that he thought we might be at war with Britain at some time. <laughs> um, uh, and his boss, um, the secretary for the Navy, a man called Josephus Daniels, um, was a pacifist. This seems to be a weird appointment, doesn't it? Uh, and he... Uh, I'm not entirely certain he understood the issues were, that were um, uh, he was having to deal with, but he certainly um, was not uh, uh, avid in uh, in pushing for ships to be sent to Britain. And indeed, it was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, who at that time was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, who was more um, outspoken in saying that ships should be sent. So if, if there is a hero in the Americans joining the, the naval effort in Queenstown, it's actually Admiral William Sims. You 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 uh, uh, pointed out something that I you know for for some listeners they might appreciate a bit of context is that you know, at this time there was not really a, a firm friendship between Britain and the United States that people could count on that that you had this tradition instead of the American Revolution being very much of of a. Uh, of, of a defining event in terms of Anglo-American relations still and the War of 1812 and how you had these generations of naval officers who basically viewed Britain as the primary enemy. And that's what I thought made Bailey's uh, efforts so uh, especially impressive, which was that he, while you did have people like Admiral Sims, who was, who, as you point out, was an Anglophile, he also had to deal with a lot of these American naval officers who had been raised and trained to think of Britain as the enemy. And he also had a, a certain amount of hostility from some British officers as well, and how he had to de- address that. It wasn't simply a matter of you know friends coming together and finding common ground. It was a matter of making friends to begin with. Uh, that's very true, but I, I think the the American Navy at the time, and remember, the American Navy had only just been invented, reinvented, really, uh, by America's greatest president, Theodore Roosevelt, who invented, you know, gave birth to the Blue Water Navy. Um, it's, the American Navy felt a great sense of um, inferiority to the Royal Navy um, because it didn't have the traditions and it didn't have the, the long list of battles and actions. So when the American sailors, when particularly their commanders arrived, I think there was a great willingness to learn. Um, and fortunately, in Bailey, they had a, there was a very practical, pragmatic, down-to-earth man who didn't lord it over them and didn't make, you know, you're just the Americans that were the Royal Navy with hundreds of years of tradition. He just said, we've all got a job to do, and if you do your job well, then I'll look after you. How did he employ the Americans in the campaign against the U-boats, and how effective were the Americans both in working with the British and in dealing with the Germans? Um, the uh, Americans only sank one U-boat, um, <laughs> but they did. But they did sink one. <laughs> um, uh, initially, Bailey employed them on the same rather pointless one-to-one escorts and patrolling that he'd been employing the sloops. But very quickly, under pressure, particularly from Sims, um, uh, they, the system of convoy was adopted. The British Navy had been rapidly against adopting convoy for reasons which are detailed in the book. But Sims recognized that given the American government's um, need to send men to the battlefront in France, uh, but at the same time, their great reluctance to risk losing men, which would lead to uh, political furore in, in the states uh, at home, um, then 
convoy was the best way of ensuring that the American soldiers got to France unharmed. Um, and so he pressed the British Navy, the Royal Navy, very hard uh, to adopt convoy. Um, that pressure was also being applied by some in the British government, um, and, the, and the Navy itself was coming round to the fact that they needed to um, to adopt convoy. Beatty in particular believed that. Um, so convoys came into uh, into existence in around um, June, July of 1917, and Bailey's forces were then primarily involved in convoy escort. So the, the, the convoys would sail from America. Uh, they would um, be escorted um, over the, the first part of the voyage by a cruiser or a battleship or a combination of that. But then Bailey's forces would pick them up 300 or so miles off the Irish coast to bring them in through the Western approaches, um, fighting them, if necessary, through the U-boats. And did the introduction of the convoy system dramatically improve the situation in the Western approaches? one of the great mysteries of life why convoy wasn't adopted from day one um, because convoy is, is not a new idea I mean the British Navy the Royal Navy were using it in the Dutch Wars of the 17th century uh, and in the, the, Napoleonic, the Napoleonic Wars that followed that um, there were some strong cultural reasons why they didn't want to adopt it uh, in the First World War, not least the fact that the, the Navy saw itself as an aggressive tool, and it, uh, an aggressive force, and it saw convoy as defensive uh, and rather demeaning. Um, but nonetheless, when convoy was adopted, losses to U-boats fell dramatically, uh, and that was the beginning of the end for uh, the success of the U-boat campaign. After that, it became much more difficult for U-boats to to sink merchant ships. The U-boats changed their tactics and tried then to attack the ships at their point of dispersal after they they'd sort of been broken up and sent to their individual ports from the convoy, and that necessitated change in the way that the um, convoys were delivered to their ports. Um, so it became a, a, a tactical battle, but the U-boats never again got the ascendancy that they'd held in April, May, June of 1917, when Jellicoe, who was um, uh, at that point um, first sea lord, um, said to the war cabinet, we are going to lose the war unless this changes. You mentioned at the beginning of our uh, conversation that you – that. Bailey was not a, a he had his reputation of being a taskmaster was not necessarily beloved by the men of the Royal Navy, and yet when you uh, end the book, you describe the degree of affection that the Americans had for him, and it was really touching to read about uh, the, the the way that they collaborated, uh, the associations that they formed, and, and how they they worked to bring Bailey over to the United States for for a very successful tour. One of the, it's, it's another abiding mystery. Bailey was, was never fated um, in his own country, uh, received no monetary award, received no special honors, but was, was lionized in America. Um, the American sailors who'd fought at Queenstown, um, the officers, uh, formed the Queenstown Association, 
Um, I think when you're forming an association, it's always a good idea to have a rich banker on board. Uh, and they, had, they had Junius Morgan, who was a scion of the, of the um, J.P. Morgan family. So they had access to plenty of money. Um, and Morgan bankrolled the, um, the Queenstown Association. Um, but yes, they, they uh, revered Bailey. And um, that not only did they invite him twice to America, um, where he was given a, a royal progress, effectively, um, they also um, uh, raised money for him, because Bailey was not a rich man. They raised money for him so he could buy a house and live in comfort after the war. And when he died, they raised money for his niece, Violet, um, so that she could live in comfort until she died as well. So he was held in very, very great respect in a way that he never was in Britain. Uh, and it's very difficult to get to the bottom of it, except that... Um, the British Navy sort of had expected that it would it would fight, and all its admirals had expected they would win, and, and they had this belief that they were better than most people. Um, the American Navy, of course, had never had that experience, and I think the way that Bailey looked after them and treated them made him a very um, important figure in their lives and someone they could look up to. Um, and of course, there were there were no comparable American admirals who could have taken his place. Sims was very clear that Bailey must command, um, uh, and um, because he had the, the, the it was his territory and he had the, the preponderance of men at the beginning. Um, and so Bailey did, and he did it in a way which the Americans responded very well to. Uh, but he was never given any honours in his own country. Um, but in America, he was fated. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, I have a new book coming out in January of 2019, which is called Southern Thunder, uh, and looks at the the trade between Britain and the Scandinavian neutrals and the role of the Royal Navy in protecting and facilitating that trade. Uh, and also, and we've just been talking about it, about the, the introduction of Convoy, because Convoy was actually first introduced uh, on the Scandinavian trade, and the book, the, the, the book that will come in January details how that came about. Well, it sounds like another fascinating study. I look forward to reading it. Steve, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>